Uh, we'll try it for a little while. All right, let's, let's jump in tonight. My title tonight is Jesus as the Promise Fulfilled, singular. Not Jesus as the Promises Fulfilled, although I agree with that as well. I went singular for the reason that I'm looking at this, trying to look at this through the lens of Advent, waiting on Jesus, waiting in a thousand different ways, waiting in the traditional sense, waiting on the baby to be born, waiting on the Messiah to show up, the way they were waiting, the darkness that precedes the nativity, but also waiting on the return, but not only that, waiting on Jesus to arrive into my darkness, waiting on Him to do this that I need Him to do, waiting on an answer to a problem that I have, waiting on a solution. We've all been waiting at something. If you haven't, you will, and it's part of the Christian experience. And it's why Jesus said, in your patience possess ye your souls. Because as you learn patience, you learn to control and, and sort of harness your emotional man. Where you don't have patience, you get out of control. Your emotions get out of control. You get anxious. You get angry. Um, insert your emotion here. Because when patience is gone, that's good. So waiting makes patience. And, that's, and, and so we're a patient people. It's part of the Christian experience. Um, I, I've, I've heard theologians say that there's almost a paper-thin difference between wisdom and patience, that they are bedfellows. That's probably true, because we, as we become a patient people, we become a wiser people. And rarely do you see wisdom that isn't couched in patience, that didn't have to go through something to get there and wait it out. So in the spirit of waiting... We look at the fact that Jesus, and we've looked at Jesus through a lot of lenses and, and what they were looking for when they found Jesus. But one of the things they were looking for was the fulfillment of promise. Not just the promise that God would send them a Messiah or the promise that God would give them a king, but the fulfillment of all of their promise. Because everything, as far as their mentality was concerned, was wrapped up in the arrival of Messiah, Christ. When the Christ figure shows up, he's going to do it all. This is their, their take. He's going to do it all. He's going to do everything we've been waiting for God to do. In a way, their anticipation of Messiah trumps how most Christians feel about Messiah. What I mean by that is they anticipated a Messiah that would come and take care of stuff. He would be the fulfillment of everything they were waiting for. Most Christians... A lot of Christians, most is probably not fair. A lot of Christianity feels as if Jesus came as the eventual fulfillment of all of God's promises. That he injected himself into the timeline as a man and he fulfilled some stuff and that he put an end to some stuff. Like you can quit doing this, you can quit doing that, and you can quit doing that. But the other stuff, pause, disappear, go to heaven and wait it out. And so someday he's going to fulfill all of the promises of God. And both of those end up disappointed in one way or the other because the, that mentality of waiting on Jesus in his first advent and then they didn't get, Caesar doesn't die. Rome doesn't get his back broken. Um, the temple, one generation comes down, sacrifices in. They go, nothing, we didn't get anything we wanted. It was like no fulfillment of what we wanted. 
And if you think Jesus did some of it, but put the rest of it on pause, then you're living in a perpetual state of either anticipation or disappointment or a mixture of both now. That why can't things be better? This was supposed to happen. This is what God, and we even say things like, God has to do this next. That one I think is always pretty brazen, especially when it comes from theology. And people will say, because we've kind of created timeline Christianity. This happens, and then this is supposed to happen, and this is supposed to happen. And, and I'll, you know, you'll hear us preachers will say things like, the next thing God has to do is this, and, which is a pretty amazing thing for us to say, what, what, to tell God what he has to do. In both cases, there's disappointment because Jesus didn't meet our expectations. Like, he didn't do what we wanted him to to do. In that in the first case of Judaism, they don't even see it in Jesus. Jesus is just another quack that thinks he's somebody and dies at the hands of the Romans and you can forget about him. Great teacher, good guy, good principles. You could model your daily living after him, but don't blaspheme God in the way that he did. And for a lot of Christians, it's it's victory on pause, but someday it'll happen. Um, what if we're just looking at it wrong? That's, my, that's my, sort of my question tonight. Is what if we're just looking at it wrong? What if we're caught in the same trap that a lot of the world was caught in when Jesus showed up? And what I mean by that is what if we're looking at the text and we're demanding things to be done a certain way because that's the way we've always read it and that's the way we've always heard it. And because we've always heard it that way and read it that way, we don't even have a possibility that we're, A, that we're wrong, and B, that there's another way you could look at it. And because we don't go through those two steps, I might be wrong, is there another way to look at it? We're locked into one way. And that's why we're saying things like, God has to do this next. God is forced to do that. Because we're reading the Bible through a lens in which we demand a certain parameters, a certain set of interpretations. And I think we're doing much the same that happened when Jesus was here. So I don't say promises fulfilled, I wanna say promise. And I'm doing all of that so you can put all of the promises into one collective person, the fulfillment of the promise. I stand here unashamedly telling you that as far as my faith is concerned, I believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God. If God promised it, it's fulfilled in Jesus. It's not on pause to be fulfilled in Jesus. It's not awaiting fulfillment in Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus if God promised it. Not everything may have come to fruition in your life the way you want to see it. Not everything on the timeline of man has has met the end of the timeline of man. We're still on that run. But all promise fulfilled in Christ, I stake my own faith on that. Okay, I don't demand you stake your faith on it, but I'm just trying to give you an an unequivocal position. And and that is that I believe all of the promises fulfilled in Christ. That does not mean that I, I don't think God rewards you or that God credits you. Because I do. I do believe that there is a reward for righteousness. There is a reward, and even some of them even manifest in this life. But I also believe there are storing up treasures in heaven, not so you can have a big bank account in heaven, but that there is a, a storage, a depository of the goodness of God available in the realm of the kingdom that is greater in both quantity and quality than 
safety, you know, than a safety deposit box or a, or a, a demand deposit account on earth. That, that there is something to be said for the things in the realm of the spirit. But they don't look like the things of the world. So the world tosses out things like karma. Karma, and I'm not going to give you the, this isn't philo 101, but essentially what comes around goes around. <laughs> let's, let's make it simple. You, you, you put in, you get out. If you do it, it comes back to you, right? This is all a big circular thing. That's sort of the, the mentality that a lot of people have. And, and they, transpose, they transpose that over onto Christ, onto God. Like, if I do this, then God's going to do this. But it's actually much more serious than that. Before we even get into the promise, I want to deal with the reward slash karma mentality. For instance, Paul says, you reap, be sure God has not mocked you, reap what you sow. What's he mean? You plant, whatever you plant is what you will reap. So if you plant an apple tree, you won't get an orange tree. So you can't put something in and then expect something completely opposite out. Or whatever, for, insert that into whatever situation you have. So reap what you sow, principle of life, put in, something comes back. Now Paul actually uses it in context of giving, financially. So if you... If you, he, Paul says, if you want the sower to still have seed in the bag, the sower's out here throwing seed and you're eating it. You're eating the product of that seed. He says, if you want the sower to have seed, then put seed in his bag. Like, don't expect it's just this endless supply, which is a way of saying, if you want to get something out of it, put something into it. So if, like, if you want your church to survive, give. You don't have to be told to tithe percentage of your check but you need to give something if you want it to be there. If you don't want it to be there, then you don't give. And stuff that you don't support eventually goes away. Simple principle, you reap what you sow. You put in, you give back. But that's about as simple as it ever gets in Christianity. Because everything else in the economy of give and get in God is disproportionate to what you put in. That's the beauty of grace. You put in a mustard seed of faith, you get the explosion of grace from heaven. It's like the whole kingdom comes to you. Just Jesus goes, that'd be very big. He's just, he holds out a mustard seed. He goes, if you had faith this size, you move mountains. That's disproportionate. That's getting way more than you put into it. That's just believing on a big God and a big God does big things. You're not big. You're just little. And even your faith isn't much. And so that's a disproportionate response. That's grace overwhelming what you put in. Um, remember this. Luke chapter 6. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Judge not lest you be judged. Condemn not lest you be condemned. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. Give and it shall be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your lap. I see that's the actual Greek word there. Well, we're thrown off in Luke 6 because give and it shall be given to you is a new verse. So it has a capital G. And when we see capital G's and new verses, we think they stand alone. And so that verse got turned into a giving verse. And so we get up and take up an offering and we go, give and it'll be given to you. If you'll give when this offering plate comes past, men are going to give unto you, pressed down, shaken up, and running over, shall men give unto your bosom. You're going to have so much, you're not going to know what to do with it. But the truth is, is that Jesus just told you, be merciful the way my dad's merciful. How's your dad merciful? I'll give you an example. When you put something in, 
you get back more than you put in. If you judge your neighbor, if you condemn your neighbor, they will give it back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will it flow into your lap. That's your reproduction. The next generation gets it too. Judge, and they'll judge your kids. Condemn, and they'll condemn your whole family. That's the way of the world. He goes, oh, by the way, there's a positive to that too. Forgive, and they'll forgive you. Pressed down, shaking together, running over. Because we exponentially, we even love to give good. We don't just love to give bad. We love to give more good than we get. And so, and then give has little to do there with money and has everything to do with whatever you dole out. So if you want a bunch of judgment, pour judgment on and get ready because there's more coming back. My point being is that God X doesn't do things proportionate. It's exponentially much more explosive when we watch how this stuff works in the economy of God. Why do I say all of that? Because I don't want you to dismiss the systems of rewards. I don't want you to dismiss the system of blessing. And I don't want you to dismiss the system of not karma but that you can plant seed and that it will return. And also when you plant seed, it doesn't give you one for one. So if you put an apple seed in the ground, grow an apple tree, you get thousands of apples. You don't get one apple. You get a disproportionate amount of apples compared to what you put in. And that's the system of what God has done. And so therefore, when God deposits himself into the earth, the return that he gets is far more than a resurrected Jesus. God deposits into the earth himself. The seed of God, man, goes down into the earth to die. It goes down. And Jesus said, unless the seed of corn goes into the ground and dies, it cannot bring forth much fruit. He said, I must go down into the earth to die. So God goes down into the earth to die so that he can disproportionately have more children. So that the resurrection of Christ, Paul sees it this way. He says, Christ has become the first fruits of everyone who will live. First fruits. Why fruits? Because there's more fruit than there was seed. So one seed goes into the ground so that all of the first fruits can live. I say all of that because if you could put all of God's promise into one place and God's promises are disproportionately better on the other side even than what we put into it, then we could put all of the promise into one place and one person, then all the fulfillment would come out of that one person. And it would not stop at an Israel or the church or at correct doctrine or those who got it right. It would circumvent all of our fences because we're good at building fences around who qualifies. And it would eventually, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So that just continues to move forward. To do that, We've got to square all the promises in one person. My favorite verse for that is 2 Corinthians 1.20. We all know this. I've quoted it many, many times. All the promises of God are in Him. They are yes, and in Him they are amen to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God are in Christ. Christ is the, in the context of this chapter. Here's the context, by the way, of this moment. Paul goes, you know, I could have come to you preaching yes, yes, and no, no. It's a weird moment for Paul to say it this way. He goes, I could have come to you preaching yes, yes, and no, no, but I decided instead to come and preach to you nothing but Christ. And in Christ, I decided to preach only a yes. And so that you know that I'm not here to preach yeses and nos, all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us.
What's yes, yes, no, no mean? To me, it means, Paul goes, I could come to you preaching a list of what you do and what you don't. Yes, yes, no, no. And that is low-hanging fruit preaching, by the way. Low-hanging fruit preaching is, let me show you all the stuff you guys need to do, and let me give you a list of stuff you need to stop doing. Paul called that yes, yes, no, no preaching. When I could have done that, but rather than do that, I preached yes in Jesus. And so then if you preach Jesus, watch this, we're going to square it all into one man, because you got yes, yes, and no, no. <laughs> and these lists are just long and get longer and get longer and get longer. They've gotten longer your whole life, my whole life. They've gotten longer throughout man's history. Paul went, I think it's why Paul goes, we've got to stop preaching yes, yes, no, no. We're never going to get done with this. Instead, what if we just put all into one yes and we put all that yes into one man? Because that will be the glory of God. And then all we do in response is a singular amen. All the promises of God are in Christ and they are yes and they are amen. So Christ is the yes, we give our amen and what we receive is disproportionate to the size of our amen. That's a grain of mustard seed, man. That's just us trusting him and then receiving his fullness so let me just pose a rhetorical how much do we really see jesus as the promise fulfilled i don't think we see it as much as we should to get to the bottom of it let's go look at some scripture and let's see how they might have looked at it in the time of christ and how because i i gotta admit i get too outside myself and I read and I see Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm blown away. And I just think these people are idiots for not getting it. You know, like I'm reading it, maybe I'm the only one, but I read it and go, you people are stupid. How you miss this? And it's standing right in front of you. I mean, this is it. I mean, this is, look at what he's doing. Look at, listen to his, what he's saying. Watch how he navigates the world. I mean, you mean to tell me you actually saw someone do this? before and you're dismissing it because you've seen it before i don't buy that what is it you're missing about it okay so then when i do that long enough and i do that when i read and i'm gosh you guys are dumb how are you missing this so I go how? so i try to get serious with myself as a student then and go okay how did they miss it get real serious how did they miss it don't be a smart aleck paul because that's easy for you so how did they really miss it? So, so then I get this blanket thing. Well, they were expecting a Messiah that would overthrow Rome. And they thought if they didn't get that, that wasn't Jesus. Okay, that's true. That's definitely there. They had enough examples of prophets that killed people that oppressed them. I mean, they got it in the, in the writings. They got, they got Elijah. You and, the, you and the prophets of Baal show down at Carmel. You make sure they're all dead before you go home because that's what you do with people you disagree with. You know, that's how you liberate God's people. They had the hammer. They had you know, the Maccabean stories of deliverance. But they had the same text that when I read it, I can see Jesus there. And they read it and they didn't see the Jesus standing in front of them. So my question then becomes, why? Why, can they, why not? Why could they read them and not see it? Let's try, all right? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You've scattered my flock. You've driven them away. You've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. Verse 3. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their folds. 
and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. I, I want to pause right here simply to inject a possibility. Let's take this phrase. This is going to set us up for how to interpret Jeremiah tonight. Let's take this one phrase and then see how it could be interpreted through the prophetic lens of Jesus and how if you don't let Jesus do that, you might be looking for literal interpretations of like God gathering people physically and bringing them back into one spot. That could, so that could be look like a land promise. God's going to bring his people back to their land. But you also have Jesus saying this in Matthew 24, verse 31. This is right after Jesus said he'll ride the clouds of the ancient of days, he'll ride the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now you might read that out of context and go, yeah, that's going to happen someday. Jesus is going to come back and do that. Three verses later, Jesus goes, this generation shall not pass away till all this stuff be fulfilled. Three verses later, verse 34. In other words, what you did was drop right down into the middle of a prophecy in which Jesus was asked, when's the temple coming down? And what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus, well, one of the things that's going to happen is the Son of Man is going to gather together His. He's going to go on a mission of gathering. And if you take literal gathering, then maybe you can squeeze a rapture into this verse where people are picked up physically and taken. Even that starts to fall apart when you ask what happens to them next, particularly in the context of what Jeremiah just prophesied. Or maybe Jesus is prophesying of what Jeremiah prophesied to say that there's coming a time in which the process of gathering the people of God together is going to happen in one man. And that that one man's going to bring them in from the four corners, from the heavens, from all over the place, from places you people don't yet know about, from countries you've never heard of and languages you don't know. And I'm, I'm talking to you as if it's the first century, right? And you can't imagine where they're going to be from and the colors of their skin and their eyes and their hair and the backgrounds that they have and the way that they live. You can't imagine, but they're his and he'll gather them. He'll do it because it's his job to do it. And he will make that happen. So that's just an idea. That's just one quick example of how you could read Jeremiah. And if you look at it through one lens, you're waiting on that. But you could look at it through a Jesus lens and see it a whole other way. Okay? If that's possible, then let's read the rest of Jeremiah that way. Not simply as sort of an AD 70 temple idea, but reading it through an idea that Jesus, this is where I want you to land, or at least where I land. You don't have to. This is my proposition. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So we land with the promise, seed promise being fulfilled in one man, Christ Jesus. Let's go back to Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called 
He doesn't say Jesus. He says the Lord is our righteousness. And we don't get a real locked-in feeling that this is fulfilled for sure until Paul begins to declare, God made him who knew no sin to be made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Paul starts to define righteousness not in terms of what you do, but in terms of who you know. And he's taking his cue from this. The name by which he will be called is the Lord our righteousness. So we're not waiting. Paul felt like we're not waiting on a day in the far off cosmic future when there's a title for God called the Lord is our righteousness. Because if we're waiting on that, then we're also waiting on natural Judah and natural Israel to dwell safely from her enemies. Instead, we could see Jesus as that man of righteousness. Okay, maybe. Let's go 10 chapters ahead. Jeremiah 33, 14. This is going to look really familiar because Jeremiah repeats himself. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Go back one screen, Brian, just because I want you to just soak this in. The days are coming that I'm going to perform the good thing that I have promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Whatever God promised, he said, there's a day coming. I'm going to make it happen. Okay. Let's figure out if it's already happened. And you're going to have to stop. You're going to take your literal glasses off. And you're going to have to put on your Jesus glasses. This is demanded of you. You follow Christ. You don't follow, you don't follow literalism. Sign, you don't turn signposts into literalism. You follow Jesus, the literal Jesus. You follow Christ. So as we watch, then watch what happens in this text. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord our righteousness. Who's she? Now, this, is this Jeremiah saying that God's going to send a queen along with the king? That you're going to have a male and a female? Or is this the female of Revelation in which he says, let me show you the Lamb's bride. And we see the new Jerusalem descending from God out of heaven. Or is this what Paul calls the chaste virgin that I present to Christ? That Christ loves his church as a man loves his wife. Is this him calling her the Lord is our righteousness? Is this Jeremiah saying not only is he going to be called the Lord of righteousness, We're going to be called the people of the Lord is our righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. So God calls Jesus righteous so that we can be called righteous. Or it's out in your future. And it's some cosmic woman that's still to come. You see how just a shift to where your lens becomes Jesus, that things begin to change as we read the text. Because if it becomes Jesus, then everything else shifts around Jesus. Not around the clock, not around world events. <laughs> it shifts around Jesus. 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings 
and to sacrifice continually. So this is a prophecy that they had. This is on the books in the days of Christ. That David's not going to lack anyone to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That the priesthood and the Levites are never going to lack having someone to do the work of the priesthood. That leads me to this thought. It's easy to see how Jeremiah's audience would take these verses to mean that sacrificial offerings were going to continue forever. How could they not read it that way? They were just told there'll never be a lack of people to offer animal sacrifice. This is one reason that when Jesus talks about the fall of the temple, such talk is unfathomable, so unfathomable that they call him a blasphemer. And they don't just call him a blasphemer because he says, I can rebuild it in three days, even though he's talking about his own body. They feel it's blasphemy because they, they're taking the prophecy literally. And they literally think that there's always going to be their kids and their grandkids running the show at the temple. Why do they think that? Because the Bible says so. I'm using an anachronistic term. No, they wouldn't have said the Bible says so. I know. But they would have said the scriptures prophesied that we'll never lack one to offer sacrifice. They're already struggling with how do we interpret the fact that we don't have a king. But they cannot sacrifice anywhere but the temple. So if the temple comes down, how can this verse be fulfilled? You see how once you've locked yourself into a way of interpreting Scripture, some other things are untenable. Like, they can't be that way. Why can't it happen? Jesus said it would happen. It can't happen because this. And then we get into God has to do this because this is what this scripture says. We could avoid so much of this if we went back to Jesus as the centerpiece of our faith, as a fulfillment of prophecy. So they can't sacrifice anywhere but the temple. Their insistence on a physical fulfillment of this prophecy blinds them to the reality of Christ. Because in Jesus, there's more than meets the eye. So they're looking at the same Jesus you and I are looking at. Now granted, we're looking at him on the other side. We know the story. But we're reading the same scriptures. And we're looking at the same Jesus. And they're blinded as to why. They're blinded. That's wrong. They're blinded as to the fulfillment of these prophecies because they expect something. And when you bring your expectations... Sometimes you're blind to, to truth and you're also open to disappointment because your expectations were not met. Okay, so take that knowledge and go back to the Jeremiah story to the next verse. Jeremiah 33, 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant. And moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord has chosen, he's also cast them off. Thus, they've despised my people as if they should be no more nation before them. 25, 26. 
Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with the day and night, if I've not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David. In other words, if, if you can stop the sun from rising and the moon from rising, if you can stop day and night from happening, you can stop these promises. That's how ironclad they are. So you're going to be so ironclad. I'll cast away the descendants of Jacob, my service, that I will not take any of his descendants to be the rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. Okay, so Jeremiah locks it down. This is it. There's got to be a king on the throne. It's got to be one of the sons of David. If that doesn't happen, then you can cancel God's covenant with the moon and the sun. This is, this is another way of saying everything's going to fall apart if God doesn't keep his promise. So you, it's either got to be him or it's got to be nothing. And this is why that when we jump into the New Testament, we see, we see Jesus begin to be referred to in the New Testament writings as the son of David. Because what we do is we identify Jesus as the son of David, thus the new king. And so Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all his promises. So let me just, let's deal with that whole problem of no king, no priest. When the temple comes down in AD 70, the veil had already been rent from top to bottom at the crucifixion. But for another generation, they keep sacrificing lambs in the temple in Jerusalem. When the Romans knock the temple down, they burn the genealogical records of Israel and they cease temple Judaism. We haven't had temple Judaism on planet Earth since AD 70 because there's no temple. So how is the promise fulfilled that there will always be people who offer sacrifice who were part of the priestly clan? This is why the New Testament begins to preach Jesus as a priest, the high priest. What are they doing? Are they twisting scriptures or are they finding their fulfillment in Jesus? Well, some would say they're doing both. Because if you're a literalist, then they're twisting scriptures. Because if you're a literalist that says, no, it's got to be physical descendants of Levi that offer sacrifices, then you can't have Jesus come in as a high priest and be a new priest offering a praise offering before his father forever. If it's got to be the next generation from David, you can't have, can have Jesus come in and begin to offer up or begin to make himself king, what Paul calls king of kings and lord of lords. But if you see the fulfillment in Jesus, then you, you're doing more. You're not twisting scripture. You're watching scripture come to its fulfillment in Christ. So Christ is either fulfilled. And, and all of these scriptures had Israel and Judah coming back to their land. They had them going home again. They had the priests performing their ministry. If it isn't fulfilled in Jesus, then we're going to be working to make things happen according to the way we think they should happen. And that's going to cause us to step outside of Christ as the fulfillment, and go to work geopolitical, go to work on the timeline, try to make things the machinations of man because they believe this is the next thing God has to do. The book of Hebrews opens with God who in various times and in various ways spoken to us in the past through the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. And he says his son is the express image of everything he is. It was the author of Hebrews saying to his own people, we used to hear it one way, but now we've heard it a new way and we'll never hear it another way again. God's final word to us is Jesus. This is what God came to do is to fulfill all of his promises through Jesus. One of the reasons why we give such uh, high praise to the Apostle Paul 
I've told you this before, but I want to add to it tonight. One of the reasons is because Paul's so great. He's got such a judicial mind. He knows the law so well. He brings all these great legal terms, great accounting terms into our salvation. Talk about fulfillment, righteousness, sanctification, justification. So we love it about Paul. But Paul also is, is because he knows the, the prophecies so well, he's also great at expanding the borders on the prophecies in a way that only could happen if you put Jesus in there as the fulfillment. I'm going to show you one that to me is glaring that doesn't get talked about enough in my opinion. Genesis 17, 7. Here's, what, here's an old school prophecy from the Bible about the people of God. This is God talking to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay. I will give you the land in which you're a stranger and all the land of Canaan. This is much like a few chapters earlier where God put Abram on the mountain and said, lift up your eyes. If you can see it, it's going to be yours. I'm going to multiply your seed like the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven. All the land that you see will be yours. This is all the way to this day has us fighting over who, who gets the land over there. Let's go, this is the everlasting covenant that God made with you're a stranger and all the land of Canaan is going to belong to you and yours. And we put that in a geographical piece of property because we take that to be the literal boundaries of what's called the middle or Palestine. Okay. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Time out. I'm going to read the, we're going to read the rest of this chapter because it's awesome. But all I really need is verse 14. Where'd Paul get that? The promise that he'd be the heir of the world. I thought he was supposed to get the land in which he was a stranger and all the land of Canaan. This is the first time in the Bible and the last time in the Bible that a New Testament writer has talked about the land promise. In other words, this is the only time in the Bible that a New Testament writer talks about the land promise. And the land promise was the land in which you're a stranger and all the land of Canaan. And Paul goes... The promise that he would be the heir of the Greek word cosmos. That's a whole kit and caboodle, man. So Paul goes, God made Abraham a promise that he'd get the whole thing. Did he? Yeah. How? It's not through the law. It's through righteousness of faith. Jeremiah said, there's one coming whose very name is going to be the righteousness of the Lord. And he's also going to have a bride. She is going to have as her name the righteousness of the Lord. He's going to gather from the heavens, from the four winds, his people, from all over the place and bring them together. But if you tunnel vision that, it's just Israel on a piece of geography. But if it's Jesus then it's the gathering in of all the saints who ever meet him, who are ever baptized into his death and raised in his resurrection. Every member of the body of Christ Church Universal, the, to quote the creeds, the Catholic and Apostolic Church, across the globe and across time, all unified in one, 
That is the righteousness of God in Christ. That's bigger than the land in which you were strangers. That's bigger than the land of Canaan. That's the whole world. Paul only can do this because he's seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Because he laid down everything he thought he knew about the Scriptures and saw it fulfilled in Christ. That's why he says to the Philippian church in Philippians 3, everything I thought I knew I count as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. I thought I knew something, but all of that was just waste. And then I met Jesus. And Jesus became the centerpiece of everything. This is why we love Paul. Because he's poetic about Christ and the centrality of Christ. And Christ being the very center of the universe. If those who are of the law are the heirs, this is Israel. If it's just people who have Moses that get it, well then we don't need faith. And we don't even need a promise. That would... That, that has to blow their mind when they read that. No, what do you talk about? The promise was ours. We're the people of God. Paul goes, you didn't even need a promise if it was performance. But the promise was never about a piece of geography. The promise was never about a group of people with a bloodline or that could trace their lineage to Abraham. The promise was always bigger than that. The promise was always disproportionate. It was put in faith, get the world. It was put in you and get him. That's the promise. And you wanted some piddly promise of property and money and some stuff. And you thought that was what God was going to enter the human family to do? Was give you a spot on the map? Paul goes, it was never about a spot on a map. It was never about a people or bloodline or circumcisions or, or ten commandments. It was always disproportionate grace. It was you put you in and you get it all back. That was the promise. That's Paul going, I could preach yes, yes, and no, no. But I've always been preaching yes, yes, and no, no. But I just decided to preach to you, Christ crucified. He's your yes, and you say amen. And all you got to do is say your amen. What a text. Because the law brings wrath where there's no law, there's no transgression. There's a lot of good righteousness stuff here, but let's read out. Therefore, it's of faith so that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, not only to natural Israel, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And then Paul says, as it is written, I made you the father of many nations. And that's how Paul builds his world inheritance text. Because he goes, what I think God meant when he said, I make you the father of many nations was not I'll make you the father of many tribes, but I'll make you the first fruits of the whole thing. People will all come in like you. Paul's just changing the way he's reading the Bible. Because it's not just that Abraham's father over a whole bunch of us. It's that Abraham's father over all of us. All of us who come in by faith. In the presence of whom, him whom he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. By the way, that's not you. I used to hear this in church. God gives us the power to call things into existence that are not as though they are. No, he doesn't. He gave that to, that's Jesus. This isn't, God doesn't give you the ability to call things which don't exist. God has the ability to call things which don't exist as though they did. That's God going, I'm going to give you the whole world. Well, that doesn't exist. It will. That's God's statement to Abraham. It will. I'm going to give you the whole thing. 18. 18. 
who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Not, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 in the de- deadness of Sarah's womb. This is historical. Israel understands this that's reading it. He didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. This is all that's been asked of us. Don't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. If you see Jesus as the promise of God, don't waver at Jesus through unbelief. He was strengthened in his faith. He gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. So am I. That's what I started with tonight. You don't have to believe any of this. I'm fully convinced that what he promised he's able to perform. And I think he did. And his name is Jesus. Fully convinced. And therefore, that was counted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but it was also written for us. In other words, pay attention. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. I told you there's a lot of good stuff. Romans is deep, and there's plenty there to say. Jesus, as the promise fulfilled. I say promise, all, I know 2 Corinthians says promises. All the promises of God are in Christ. I say promise because I'm pointing back to the Abrahamic promise. And Paul said that that promise is fulfilled. And I believe that all of it is wrapped up in that promise. I'm going to make you the heir. And Paul, have, having had a revelation of a resurrected Christ, says, our old way was too small. There's a text, I think it's in Isaiah. I could look it up, but I don't want to spend your, your time there's a moment in Isaiah where, where Isaiah prophesies that the day is coming when God will say, it is too small a thing to send my servant only for the house of Israel. And I say amen to that. It is too small a thing to send them only to Israel. Um, because, and, and this always gets into arguments of what then is Israel and what does Paul mean by Israel? And Paul says all Israel shall be saved and, my personal feeling of that is that Paul truly believed that the expansion of the term Israel was all who came in through the seed, which was Jesus. And so when people go, do you believe that the church replaces Israel? My response, and I mean, I'm not trying to sound like a smart aleck. This is my true to heart response, is the church was too late. Jesus came as the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel. You don't need the church to replace it. If the church never existed, all the promises were fulfilled in Jesus. <laughs> They're not fulfilled in the church. The church is an offspring of some of those. The people of God are the offspring of that, but the promise is fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray. You are a good father. Thank you, Father. I am persuaded that the promise that you made to Abraham and to his seed, not seeds, as Galatians says, is fulfilled in Christ. And thus, all of those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed. That's how Paul came to the conclusion that in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, but all are one. Father, in this Advent season, as we wait, may we see Jesus fresh and new. We're heading into the celebration of the birth of Christ in his first advent, but may we see Jesus fresh and new, rebirthed in all of us as the fulfillment of the promise of God. 
And all we have to do is give it our amen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.